I mean, I, I define it as being sort of coercive paternalism, really. So uh, it's not just regulation to require, for example, restaurants not to have rats running around in it or, or signposts saying, you know, don't get too close to the edge of this cliff. It's when the government um, is deliberately trying to deter adults from doing things that it doesn't think adults should be doing, even though the adults themselves obviously disagree. And um, so we're not talking here about correcting genuine market failures. We are just talking about paternalistic actions. Welcome back to the IEA podcast. I'm Matthew Lesh, the Director of Public Policy and Communications here at the IEA. This podcast asks a tantalizing policy question each week. Today's question, is Britain in any state? Imagine a world where the government tells you what you can eat, drink, smoke, or even how much sugar you can have in your drink. That's not some dystopian fantasy. It's the lives of billions of people across the planet. And from extended sugar taxes to junk-free ad bans, state interference in lifestyle choices really only seems to grow. So in this episode, I'm going to be discussing the latest edition of the Nanny State Index, released this week by the IEA in conjunction with Epicenter Partners. Uh, the Daily State Index is authored by our own Chris Snowden, who's the head of lifestyle economics here at the IEA, as well as the author of numerous publications on issues ranging from gambling to public health. Welcome, Chris, to the podcast. Hi, Matt. Thanks for having me on. Before we get into the index, I kind of just what is the nanny state? I think it's a, a phrase that's now become kind of amorphous when we talk about these issues. But I'm intrigued in, in what, what counts as something kind of nanny stating and what is just, I suppose, general government interference in, in our lives or policy or economics. Yeah, I mean, I, I define it as being sort of coercive paternalism, really. So uh, it's not just regulation to require, for example, restaurants not to have rats running around in it or, or signposts saying, you know, don't get too close to the edge of this cliff. It's when the government um, is deliberately trying to deter adults from doing things that it doesn't think adults should be doing, even though the adults themselves obviously disagree. And um, so we're not talking here about correcting genuine market failures. We are just talking about paternalistic actions. So the Nanny State Index um, basically has four components. It's um, e-cigarettes, tobacco, alcohol, and food slash soft drinks. Uh, and these are all the areas that public health paternalists have been uh, focusing on for, for years and years now. So the, yeah, the, as you've said, it's distinguished from kind of, uh, I suppose, normal kind of justifications of state interference it's also probably a little bit different from public information campaigns so you're not necessarily focused on when the government says you know cigarettes are bad for you that's not necessarily paternalistic per se i suppose it's all different also slightly different from nudging which is to say i suppose nudging can be uh paternalistic but in its purest form it should be you know encouraging people to make a better decision rather than what you're talking about is forcing people into making a different decision to what they otherwise would have made yeah, and there's always going to be kind of a little bit of grey area around some of these things. Um, so, for example, this week, Canada has introduced or said it's going to start introducing individual health warnings on cigarettes, right? Um, uh, really kind of far out idea. It's been knocking around for decades, actually, on the on the fringes of the anti-smoking movement, but Canada has, has adopted it. Now, some people could say that that's just giving information to people. But given, if you've seen what a Canadian cigarette pack looks like, let alone all the anti-smoking advertising that's been going on for, for decades, you know, I mean, nobody is any in any doubt 
uh, about the health effects of smoking. So the idea that there is a genuine information failure here and that consumers are only smoking because they think that cigarettes are good for them is clearly absurd. So I would say something like that is a nanny state measure. It's just designed, rather like the graphic warnings are designed, to deter people from from doing it not by giving them new information or information that they're, they're not aware of or need but just by making cigarettes look stupid you know and making the packs look revolting so i think that's where it crosses the line from genuine education which can be justified in on kind of liberal grounds to to being nanny state so that's one example of it you know and you do get other areas which are a bit more uh, contentious like the the um, calorie labeling on menus people have different views about that uh, I personally I think that probably still just about counts as, as legitimate information it's not really wagging a finger as such but most of the stuff in the nanny state index is pretty obviously um paternalistic you know syntaxes for example which go far beyond what you would need for for them to be defined as pagovian taxes let's 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 get into that then what is the nanny state index what what have you found okay so the nanny state index we've been doing since 2016 we do it every two years it's got 30 countries in it um all the eu countries plus the uk plus a couple of others we've got turkey in for the first time this year and Turkey immediately took the top spot. It's um, it has a complete ban on the sale of e-cigarettes. It's it's pretty draconian when it comes to both alcohol and tobacco, um, and so it has pushed Norway off the the top spot. Norway now I think is second. Then you've got countries like Lithuania, um, Finland, Hungary, Ireland. A bit of a mixed bag, really. Um, it's fairly predictable that you'd see at least a couple of Scandinavian. Kind of uh, nanny states, as it were, social democracies up there. Uh, maybe fairly predictable, you might see a couple of fairly autocratic countries, you know, authoritarian countries like um, Hungary and um, and Turkey. But then you, you then you got Ireland, um, which has been very keen on nanny state measures for about twenty years or more. Uh, and then Lithuania is one of a number of Eastern European countries that in recent years has really been clamping down, not just on alcohol but also on energy drinks for some reason and on um, on vaping. And the bigger picture across Europe uh, is that uh, there's very, very little liberalisation. Norway repealed its sugar tax a couple of years ago. That's about the, 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 the start and end of liberalisation. Uh, it's just gradual and sometimes quite rapid um, increase in, in nanny state activity across the board, not generally driven by the EU itself, usually driven by domestic governments copying one another. And um, the UK has... It's only 11th. Some people in Britain might be surprised it's only 11th. Um, it's not because it's been liberalising anything, quite quite the reverse. It's now the second worst country for food and drink regulation. It's still number one for um, draconian anti-smoking regulation. It just happens to have a fairly laissez-faire, relatively laissez-faire attitude towards e-cigarettes, as does Ireland, um, interestingly. So um, both those countries would be way higher up if it wasn't for that. Um, and at the bottom of the table, you've got places like Germany. Germany, ever since we started doing this, has been the best country, um, the, the freest country, quite low syntaxes, relatively relaxed attitude towards smoking and vaping and so on. No like excessive food and drink regulation. Then you've got places like Czech Republic, Luxembourg, Spain, Italy. The Mediterranean countries tend to do a little bit better than um, the kind of Northern Europe, Scandinavia and, and Eastern Europe. Um, and yeah, you know, the point I would make amongst many really is, is that, you know, if you look at the countries that have got less regulation and there's a massive difference between places like Germany and places like Turkey. I mean, there really is a, a huge uh, divergence that some countries have, have been on. 
yeah, what's wrong with living in Germany? You know, what's wrong with Luxembourg and Italy and Czech Republic? These are all perfectly nice, successful, reasonably prosperous countries. Um, and there's no difference in life expectancy or health outcomes, you know. So the, the primary aim of these policies doesn't obviously seem to be to be working. It's not as if the countries that don't have nanny state policies are all falling apart, they're failed states and people are dying in the streets, whereas the ones at the top, like Turkey, are, are tremendously healthy, happy and prosperous. There just isn't any correlation. Uh, and I think people in different countries get used to certain policies and uh, maybe it's so parochial they don't really think about what it's like in other places. But, you know, I, I wrote something for The Critic this week saying that, you know, if if the the government and Liz Truss kind of just leant slightly in this direction when it was rumoured she might be getting rid of the sugar tax, if the government tomorrow said we're going to we're going to relax the smoking ban, we're going to get rid of plain packaging for tobacco, we're going to get rid of minimum pricing in Scotland and Wales, uh, we're going to halve taxes on on alcohol, we're going to get rid of the sugar tax. Yeah, people would be up in arms going, well, we, 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 we're going to be a pariah. You know, we, we, the whole country is mm -hmm. going to fall apart without this regulation. And yet that just describes what the situation already is in places like Germany and Luxembourg, who seem to do perfectly fine without any of these policies. So I'm kind of interested uh, in, in thinking quickly before I get into a little more depth about the UK, about what we're kind of comparing here. So is Germany, in, in, would you say in absolute terms, not particularly nanny statist, or is it just in relative terms that everyone's a bit nanny statist and, and Germany is just at one end of it? Um, and secondly, why do you think that is the case? Because I, I think there's, uh, and maybe you pointed out in something, Ryan, this week, that we we see the UK as, you know, freewheeling British liberty. We see Germans as, as quite strict and, and controlling, at least that's the kind of stereotype. It doesn't seem to carry through in your ratings of, of what you would almost expect from kind of the historical understanding of different political cultures yeah well i mean germany obviously has had a history of quite authoritarian rule at times and i think that's one of the reasons it doesn't have now it's a direct backlash in some respects to to you know the, the governments uh, of the 1930s and 40s i mean it, it genuinely is um whereas you've got other countries like eastern europe which initially after the breakup of the soviet union went very much in a kind of free market direction and some of them still um still have that to some extent but over time the the kind of the regulatory state has kind of crept back in um and particularly on issues like alcohol um so yeah it might seem surprising to people but you know the idea of of, of britain as a liberty loving nation of you know rugged individualists is a self-serving myth really you know and you get the same self-serving myth in ireland where it's even less true and in places like California and New York and Australia. I mean, all the, all the places that you think of as being traditionally kind of people who do what they want, they don't at all. They're the, the worst countries for capitulating to these people. Um, and I imagine that the nanny states consider it quite a scalp to be, you know, uh, taken over the likes of New York and Dublin. Um, so, yeah, that, that self-image people have, or maybe the image projected by others, hasn't really stood up for a, a very long time. Uh, it's simply not true. You know, at least people in Scandinavia kind of recognise that they they have a big government and they seem to kind of like it that way. Whereas in Britain, we pretend that we we defend liberty and we capitulate to all sorts of single issue pressure groups all the time. Is is the pressure for that quite elite driven though? I mean, I suspect there isn't that really that much public engagement on the question of whether or not you should 
ban junk food advertising. Maybe if you ask the public, they, they wouldn't be uproar, but I doubt they'd list it in their top five or 20 right. priorities. So so what I suppose what is driving the, the policymakers in that direction is always an interesting question. Well, you make a very good point there. That if you if you compare these policies to any other major public policies, they, they're not salient at all for the general public. So surveys have shown this, you know, that people are much more interested in all sorts of other policy areas rather than these. And yet these issues just keep coming up and it's just one one policy battle over uh, after another and usually the, the nanny state is to win it. Why should that be? And it's a very interesting question because you know, paternalists don't really represent any particular constituency. There's no particular group of voters who really benefit from most of this stuff. Now, it's possible- And also no one's going to the polls saying, well, I wasn't going to vote Tory, but because they want to ban junk food ads, I'm now going to vote Tory. Yeah, right. There's very few people going to vote a particular way um, on on these issues. And the people in public health uh, who are but the only people who are genuinely passionate about them probably wouldn't vote for the Conservatives anyway. So you might think, well, after 13 years of Conservative government, why are we, why are we still getting all this stuff? Um, I, I think it's more... The, the public health in, interest groups, as it were, apart from the fact that a lot of them are directly state-funded, they don't, as I say, paternalists don't really represent anybody else. There's not millions of people who feel very passionately that other people shouldn't be doing anything. I mean, you get people who are just prejudiced or, or, or feel even like they're altruistic in some way because they're clamping down on other people drinking or smoking, what have you. Um, but they don't care that much. And because why would you? You haven't got that much skin in the game. You haven't really got any skin in the game. The only people who really got skin in the game are the public health groups um, who are themselves self-serving to some extent. If they're, if they're being funded by the government, they need to show that they win policy battles and they've got to keep finding new policy battles to fight. Otherwise, the the, the justification of their existence goes out the window. So you, what you end up with, and this is very much in line with public choice theory, is very small concentrated interest groups battling it out. And they're usually battling it out with very small concentrated interest groups from industry, because industry, are, you know, they've obviously got their own self-interest reasons for for not wanting to be massively overregulated, but there are millions and millions of consumers who are affected by these things, but only in a relatively small way, uh, too small a way to justify them spending a huge amount of time and effort fighting these things. So in practice, what you have is a very small group of, of, of public health paternalists who are fighting against a very small group of usually industry-based groups and that's how the public see it and naturally the public uh, the public will side with the nice doctors rather than with the 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 rich businessmen um but what is the group that's left out obviously is consumers the people who don't consume the product have no particular reason to care either way and they don't when when compared to other policy issues they might say they support it if you just give them a choice between would you like to ban junk food advertising or would you not particularly if you call it junk food advertising rather than explaining what the actual food products that are going to be affected are. But their, their passion for the issue is likely to be very, very small. Um, and it's limited literally to ticking a box on a survey. They're not even probably going to sign a petition for it, let alone you know go out marching in the streets for it. Um, but the same is broadly true of the people who do consume the product, because although they are more directly affected, um, they feel they can probably free ride on the opposition that the industry groups provide. Um, but even if they couldn't do that, 
again, they don't have a sufficient incentive to get on a coach at five in the morning and go down to Trafalgar Square at the weekend and protest outside Parliament um, for what is probably a lost cause. Yeah, things are doing dynamic here where you, you effectively have a, a very strong elite consensus in, in a certain dire- interventionist direction. And there's philosophically level very little opposition to that. And then I think they'll also make other arguments around which, which you know, you, you spend a lot of time debunking, but seems to persuade them that, in fact, these policies are necessary and effective. Like we, we can't underestimate the fact that they, they at the very least have managed to persuade themselves that calorie counts on menus might be effective at reducing the amount people consume and therefore helping save our precious NHS. And there's a kind of- Yeah, right. So that's the, only, that. that's the only really sort of rationally self-interested reason people who don't consume a product could have for supporting paternalistic measures against other people. If they genuinely believe that- they're going to you know, pay less tax because the NHS is going to become more efficient. And no doubt a lot of people do believe that. It's not true for reasons I won't go into now, but I've gone into many times in the past. Um, in actual fact, the, the healthcare savings or the welfare savings are likely to be very small indeed. And, and, and actually these policies, if they worked, would probably cost the uh, you know, general taxpayer more money. But I just, just pause in there for a second. I think it's an interesting point here that, of course, when beverage... Kind of proposed the NHS, the and it was introduced. It was thought that um, spending on healthcare would go down because yes. people would be healthier. <laughs> and in fact, the opposite happened, which is once you start ensuring people live longer, you, they end up having more conditions and more demands on the health system over time. Yeah. So well, when the NHS health- was formed, when the NHS was formed, it cost less than one percent of GDP, and now it costs twelve percent of GDP. So that little theory didn't seem to quite pan out. Um, but you know that is if people. I mean, people definitely do believe that, and people say it all the time that you know they, they think that smokers or the obese are a drain on the NHS, and therefore we need to uh, tackle these things in order to save other people money. I, I, I don't believe that people actually feel that so strongly that um, it explains their support for these policies. But I guess even if they think there's only a very marginal gain to them that's enough to support the policy, right? Unless you actually believe in the you know, principles of individual liberty or you're worried about the slippery slope and you think that actually if they start and these people eventually are gonna to get to me, if you take a bit more of a long-term view as I do, then um, you get worried about all these things because it's, it all builds up to a, a bigger picture of, of state intervention. It sets dangerous precedents. But if you're just thinking in the short term and you do believe that maybe as the government said yesterday, ludicrously, um, their, their, their restrictions and where you can put certain food products in supermarkets is going to produce 57 billion pounds of savings. I mean, just an insane estimate. I don't know what impact assessment came up with that. What? If you believe that kind of stuff, even if you believe it's only 57 million, you know, it maybe it saves you 10p. It's still better than saving nothing yeah. at all. I get, get- given that the policy won't, won't damage you otherwise, why wouldn't you support it on paper? Yeah. I guess also the, the 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 kind of almost philosophical prioritization of freedom is is you know something you can't necessarily monetize. So um, that kind of trade off is not something most people who go into policy making are particularly interested in. That you know freedom is not something you can put in an impact assessment, but the monetary costs of obesity are, or at least your your estimates thereof. Um, I've kind yeah. of. I've kind of taken us on a bit of a tangent. We haven't gone too much into the UK results. So um, as you said earlier, uh, I believe that the UK has gotten one place worse since last year. um, And the only saving grace is the approach to vaping. Um, I'm I'm interested in why the UK 
um, seems to have taken, a, I suppose, a, a different approach, particularly compared to you know my home country in Australia, where vaping is effectively banned unless you get a prescription from a doctor. Um, same uh, kind of very strong anti-vaping policies in the US, although it is legal. Um, lots of anti-vaping policies across Europe. Why is the UK chosen a slightly different path here? Uh, basically because the public health elite in Britain took a different view to the public health elite in, in Australia. You know, these decisions, when it comes down to it, are made by a fairly small group of people. Um, in both countries, the, those groups are fanatically anti-smoking. It's just the ones in Britain feel that the best way to bring down the smoking rate is by getting people to switch to vapes um, rather than trying to ban both vapes and tobacco at some point. Um, so it really is just a, a difference of opinion. Um, and once both groups kind of took their stance a few years ago, they kind of dug in. And I hope, obviously, that the British public health you know, lobby continues to maintain that stance and dig in because it's obviously the right one. It, it happens to be the more liberty enhancing one, but it also happens to be one that's more beneficial to public health. So I think it really is, is, is just as simple as that. It's kind of an ideological difference almost in, in that you've got people in Australia who are leading the conversation who just had this kind of vision of a nicotine free world. Whereas Britain, in, in Britain, the public health academics have it's ever since the 70s had a kind of harm reduction view, um, which has been a little bit different to, to not just Australia, but many other countries. And so the foundations were already there for the acceptance of e-cigarettes in a way that they weren't in Australia, where you have to remember e-cigarettes were already de facto banned because all nicotine products are banned in Australia unless they're in pharmaceuticals or in tobacco. So they started out from a position of, well, we've already got pro prohibition and we kind of need to justify it. Whereas in Britain, we started out from a tradition of, wouldn't it be nice if people could take nicotine without getting the, you know, the, the health harms? Uh, more broadly speaking, though, that the news in the UK is, is not particularly positive, you just said. If, I, I don't know whether you've done the calculation, but if you strip out vaping, where does the UK come in the overall ranking? Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day. I haven't actually done the calculation, but it must be around about fourth or fifth at least, because it comes top for tobacco, comes second for food and drinks, and it comes about 13th for alcohol. So I think it would probably end up in the top five, roughly speaking. And and what direction are things kind of going in in the UK at the, at the moment on these policies? How has it changed and what's next? Uh, it's going to get worse. I mean, one of the reasons alcohol is only 13, UK is only 13 for alcohol, is it's tended to, well, the government has tended to freeze alcohol tax, actually, most of the last decade, most years in the last decade, is tended to uh, freeze alcohol. Even, I think, George Osborne knocked a penny off a pint at one point a few years ago. Um, and funnily enough, we're quite liberal on alcohol advertising. Um, quite a few countries are very, very harsh on alcohol advertising, particularly in Eastern Europe, but even France. Whereas, although Britain is quite uptight about alcohol in lots of ways and very heavily taxes it, we've never had particularly draconian rules on, on advertising. But that the, the taxation side of it is set to change in, in August because there's going to be in, inflation um, index linked uh, tax hikes on every form of booze, I think. So that would be double digit increases in, in taxes there. And we still have more of this anti-food stuff to come. Um, so far, we've seen the calorie labeling on menus and we've seen the, um, the ban on positioning cheese and bacon at the end of aisles in supermarkets, which is gonna save us 57 billion pound. But there's more to come. There's the buy one, get one free 
um, offers, the, the volume price discounts, they're going to be banned in October, supposedly. That was already pushed back from last October because there's a cost of living crisis. And it obviously it's not great optics for the government to be banning, banning cheap food deals um, during a cost of living crisis. But of course, since then, food inflation has got even worse and is now about 19%. So it remains to be seen whether the government is going to have the brass neck to uh, enforce this ban on, on food, you know, cheap food deals when inflation on food is in double digits and they're going around groveling to the supermarkets asking them to bring in a voluntary cap on on food prices so we'll see whether that comes in but um you would think there's a good chance of it, it won't do and on top of that you've also got the food advertising ban um uh, watershed ban on television and around the clock on the internet and um just one point to make about this is that you know, when I said before, people are so parochial and they kind of assume that the regulations that are enforced in their country probably broadly similar around the, the rest of Europe or the rest of the world, and they're not. Well, the, this food stuff, you've got the public health people screaming blue murder, saying the government's dragging its heels on this, and even the stuff that's been tabled and, and legislated for is nowhere near sufficient. Well, actually, it, it, it goes beyond anything else pretty much seen in the rest of the world. Hungary is the worst country in the United States index because it has an extensive array of syntaxes on all sorts of different foods, which to be fair, we don't. We just have the sugary drinks tax for the time being. But Hungary and, and no, no other country that I'm aware of has the kind of advertising restrictions the government's going to bring in, has this ban on buy one, get one free, has these restrictions on where supermarkets can place their products. As far as I know, this is all totally unprecedented globally. OK, so we are going way beyond what any other country is um, talking about, all because apparently, you know, Boris Johnson had a brush with death in April 2020. Yeah, and he had his conversion from uh, you know, um, Jaws shark loving uh, libertarian to uh, nanny state. Lockdown loving anti-Bergamon, anti yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very, very confusing man indeed. How do things compare across the UK? Because of course there are different policies for, for public health and it's, I believe it's devolved responsibility in, in Wales, England, Northern Ireland and England. Yeah, well, Scotland's even worse Scotland, um, because the SNP has been on a bit of a temperance kick for the last decade or so. So they've got minimum pricing. Wales has got minimum pricing now for alcohol. Um, there are also a few other little regulations that the SNP have brought in really just to try and distinguish themselves from, from Westminster. They've got... Um, like a uh, three for two off, off a ban, kind of a bog off ban on booze. They've had that for quite a while. They've got a lower drink driving rate. I mean, drink driving isn't really a part of the United States index, except for the countries that have like a zero level. Uh, and this is another kind of gray area, I guess you could say, because I mean, even pretty extreme libertarians accept that there should be laws against drink driving. Um, but when you set it at the level at zero, what you're basically saying is you can't have a drink the night before you go to work. On the night before you're driving the next day so it effectively is a temperance measure really rather than a genuine road traffic um, policy uh, but yeah scotland's got a few extra policies minimum uh, minimum pricing is in place in scotland and in wales northern ireland i can't think of anything in particular that they have that um, we don't they're still intending to bring in minimum pricing at some point now that southern ireland's got minimum pricing but given how much booze they're selling to people coming up from the south I don't think they're in any great rush to do that. And finally, I'm interested in your findings in terms of the effectiveness of this, because you would think 
now you've got a kind of a decent sample of countries, you can kind of figure out, you know, what is the impact of these policies on things like life expectancy or obesity or anything like that across different countries? Yeah, well, ever since we've been doing this, I always correlate the nanny state index scores along with um, life expectancy, which is obviously the most obvious measure to kind of gauge the health of a nation. And there's never been a correlation. There isn't a correlation this time. Um, now, you might say that's a very broad measure. Obviously, there are lots of other things affect life expectancy, although, of course, smoke and obesity are going to be two, two of the biggest ones. Um, but if you then narrow it down a little bit, just look at the tobacco scores and match them up alongside smoking rates, no correlation there either. Uh, similarly, alcohol scores, no correlation with per capita alcohol consumption. So um, there isn't the kind of, you know, even the vaguest hint of the kind of correlation you would expect if these policies were reasonably effective. And I think it's fair to draw the conclusion that most, if not all of these policies are pretty ineffective. And given that they do have lots of negative consequences, I mean, syntaxes obviously make people poor, they you know, increase inequalities, the consumer welfare point that you brought up before, often overlooked, but pretty important. You know, if you believe in the well-being of society and happiness and stopping people doing the things that make them happy is uh, a pretty significant cost. And there are others, you know, you get black market um, quite a bit, obviously with tobacco, huge black market pretty much all over Europe, but also alcohol, big black market, or at least a lot of cross-border um, selling and buying of alcohol, particularly in Eastern Europe. So there are all sorts of negative consequences from these policies, never properly evaluated in, in my view. Um, and we just come to accept them because they're there and they've been there for a few years. And why would the government have introduced them if they didn't work? But I mean, if you, you look at the evidence on plain packaging, for example, it just didn't make any difference in this country. The minimum pricing evaluation in Scotland, with the exception of one modelling study, which looks pretty dubious to me all the evidence coming out of that evaluation has so it hasn't made any difference if anything heavier drinkers particularly men are actually drinking a bit more um you've got alcohol related deaths at a kind of 12 year high and uh, and you know it's that's kind of like that across the board these things fail for reasons that are fairly obvious really to the man in the pub but apparently not to an intellectual library tower well, Chris, and I think part of the, the excellent work you do is, is going back through the, the claims that were made when these policies were introduced and then actually analysing the studies and, and the claims about the data, which is always can be quite uh, entertaining, if not quite um, de depressing at times, as these things are done time and time again using the, the same poor arguments. Um, I think we might uh, have to leave it there though it's been a, a fascinating conversation um if, if people want to learn more about nanny state index and your work um where can they go www.nannystateindex.org that's a kind of vaguely interactive website you can look at all the criteria you can download the actual publication there'll be hard copies of that coming out i think uh, in the coming weeks um and you can even, I think, download previous editions of it, but you don't really need to. Uh, and you can use it, don't forget, folks, as a kind of tourist guide. Um, and there are some places now in Europe you really don't really want to be going if you're a vapor or a, or a smoker in particular. Um, so you do check out what the what the laws are wherever you go, because about half the countries now on the list don't let you vape indoors. You know, or anywhere you can't smoke, you can't vape either. Um, and about at least half the countries are charging tax on e-cigarette fluid. The EU is planning apparently to, to have an EU-wide 
tax on vaping. So if you're looking for a Brexit benefit, us not going along with that would definitely be one. So yeah, um, it's it's out. Download it, nannystateindex.org. Well, from the German tourist uh, advisory board, Kristoden, <laughs> uh, 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 of course, thank you very much. Um, Chris is the, the head of lifestyle economics here at the IA and the co-editor of the Nanny State Index. If you're enjoying the IA podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider or also the IA's YouTube channel. You can also learn more about um, the IA's work uh, by visiting ia.org.uk.